As a speaker, as a preacher, somebody who's done this for uh, a few years, I still am afraid every, every time I speak, I'm afraid I'm going to offend someone. And I'm afraid that I'm going to so offend somebody that somebody's going to say, I'm out. I don't want to hear that anymore. I don't believe that. I don't accept that. I'm gone. And, and I'm afraid that I'm going to run somebody off. And before you say, oh, Wes, that had never happened. Jesus did that. Do you know that? Jesus one time did a miracle that we just read about. And then he, he gave a long discourse about who he was and what that miracle has to do with his mission. And who he really is. And after that sermon and that discourse, tons of people said, I'm out. I don't believe this. I don't want to follow this guy anymore. And these were people that John calls disciples. People that were so in love with what Jesus was doing and who he was, they followed him to the other side of the sea. They wanted to make him their king, if by force if necessary. And then after this sermon, they said, we're done. We're out. We're not following this guy anymore. So this morning, I want to consider three things as we look at this text from John chapter 6. I want to say, what did Jesus, what did Jesus say that so offended people like that? And then two, why were they offended? Why, why were these people so offended at what Jesus said that they said, we're not going to follow this guy anymore? And third, a question for self-reflection is the question that Jesus asks the twelve do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Let's think about those three questions as we look at the text this morning. And we're going we're gonna to start in John chapter 5. So if you got your Bible, we're going to be in John 5 and verse 45. Because as Jesus, as this sort of section ends, and we have to remember John arranges all of this information, all the things Jesus says and does in a particular order to make his point, Right? And so John chapter 5 ends as Jesus is admonishing the Jewish leaders. And he's admonishing them this way. He says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. But there is one who accuses you. Moses. Moses. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. And he says, On whom you have set your hope. Now I want you to remember that phrase as we go through this text this morning. On whom you have set your hope. What does that mean? What does it mean to set your hope? What does it mean that the Jewish people had set their hope on on, on Moses? What does that mean that these Jewish leaders had set their hope on Moses? It doesn't just mean that they liked Moses, or they looked up to Moses, or they appreciated Moses, or even that they thought the things that Moses said was from God. They set their hope on Moses. They believed in Moses and the things that he wrote. They trusted in Moses you know, we might say, we have interesting sayings sometimes, don't we? we? We say things like, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That means, you know, you, you got to kind of diversify things, right? You got to kind of hedge your bets. Don't, don't put everything, all your hopes on one thing, on one idea, on one person. But they had, hadn't they? They had put all of their hopes on Moses. And, and it wasn't that they were wrong in doing so. They, they trusted that what he said was true and was from God. And in a statement like this, when Jesus says, on whom you have put your hopes, that's to those Jewish people in the first century, it was just as political as it was spiritual. 
And so as we sort of wrestle with this text that we're going to read this morning, let's ask ourselves that for a second. On whom have you set your hopes? On whom have you set your hopes? And it's really easy to kind of compartmentalize our life and we say, oh, Jesus, Jesus is the one on whom I have set my hopes. Well, I I hope that that's true and we're going to wrestle with that question, but is there anybody else? What about politically? Sometimes do we pick political leaders and we could say, on him or her, I have set my hopes? Or what about political parties? On them, on that party, on that platform, have I set my hopes? What about political ideologies, concepts and philosophies? On that, have you set your hopes? And, and here Jesus is talking to a group of people, and here are people who, who took pride in the fact that we have set our hopes on Moses. But Jesus says, listen, if that were really true, then you would accept me. If that were really true, if you really believed and trusted in and hoped in Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because, verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You say, we've put all of our hopes in Moses. We believe in Moses. We trust in Moses. he's, He's the basket that we put all of our eggs in. And Jesus says, if that was really true, you would believe me. You would trust in me. You would put your hopes in me. Why? Because Moses told you about me. And there's probably lots of ways you could take that. How did Moses tell the people about Jesus? How did Moses write about Jesus hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus? Well, there's, there's lots of different ways you could take that. But I think maybe Deuteronomy 18 is one of those texts. Verse 15 says, this is Moses talking. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And then Moses says again, the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God says to Moses, and then Moses tells the people, God's going to raise up for you, from you, a prophet like me, and you need to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, God will punish you. You've got to listen to this prophet who is to come. This coming prophet. And so the people were looking. They were looking for somebody that was like David, a king. Do you remember how we've talked about in John, all of these Jewish expectations merge on the person of Jesus? So they're looking for a son of David. They're looking for a coming king. They're looking for a coming priest. They're looking for a coming prophet. Someone like Moses, who's going to be the one to whom Moses was pointing. And Jesus says, that's me. And if you really trusted Moses, if you really believed in Moses, if you really put your hopes in Moses, then you would, then you would say, okay, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the one to whom Moses was pointing. Jesus is the prophet who was to come. And now we're going to put all of our hope and all of our trust and all of our faith, all of our belief in Jesus. Now we're going to take all of our eggs and put it in that basket. And Jesus is saying, the very fact that you won't do that, 
and you refuse to put your trust in me shows that you really don't believe in Moses, the one on whom you say you put your trust. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, again, keep that in mind as we read this story about Moses. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the prophet who is like Moses in so many ways. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the, what? On the mountain. Does that, does that ring a bell, Right? I mean, that's what this whole text is about. And remember, John began. Remember, I said everything goes back to the prologue, the first 18 verses of the book of John. Everything goes back to that. And John said when he introduced Jesus to us, he said, listen, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus, right? And so so this part of the text, we're supposed to be thinking about that. We're supposed to be thinking about Moses and wrestling with the question, is Jesus the prophet who is to come. And so Jesus, like Moses, goes up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And then verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So for centuries they had celebrated the Passover, and what was the Passover all about? How Moses had delivered them from slavery, right? Or how God, through Moses, had delivered them out of slavery, brought them into the wilderness, and then, like a shepherd, shepherded them for 40 years in the wilderness, making sure that they had water to drink and food to eat and watching over them and caring for them and leading them. And so as they're preparing to remember the Passover and what God had done through Moses, now this Messiah, this this rabbi, this teacher shows up. And the question is, is he? Is he the prophet that is to come? Is he the one that is like Moses? And obviously John is saying, yes, of course he is. Now, like a shepherd, he, he feeds 5,000, we don't have time to read the text again, but he feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. And, and then, but look at verse 12. It says this, when they had eaten their fill, so he's fed 5,000 men, made sure they all had food to eat, and they all have eaten their fill. He told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now, when I first read this, you know, when I read this all my life, I've always thought, well, Jesus was a whole lot like my mom, right? I'm going to make sure all the leftovers are picked up, you know? But there's more going on there than that. In fact, as you keep reading through the Gospel of John, that nothing may be lost, that's a common theme all throughout the book of John. And everything Jesus is doing is a sign. He's not, he's not just gathering up the leftovers because he wants to stick them in the fridge for next week, you know? I mean, he's not concerned that no food gets lost. It's a sign that nothing may be lost. And then it says, so they gathered them up and filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Twelve, like the twelve tribes of Israel. Isn't that what's being said? That Jesus is gathering up the twelve tribes, that he's gathering up God's people and that nothing will be lost? I mean, he says in, in verse 39 of the same chapter, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And then when he finishes his ministry in John 17, verse 12, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So John is helping us to see that like these 12 baskets of 
leftovers, Jesus is gathering up the 12 tribes of Israel, all those that the Father has given to him that nothing may be lost, that none of the ones that the Father is drawing to the Son would be lost, but that the Son would gather them all up and would be their shepherd. Now, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, right? They looked and they said, this is the prophet who was to come into the world. This is Deuteronomy 18.15. This is the one who is like Moses. This is the prophet that Moses said, listen to him, listen to him. So the stage is set, right? The people have this expectation. This is the one who, like Moses, is going to be the one to lead us out of slavery. This is going to be our new Passover. Our new Passover is going to be fulfilled in this new prophet. He's going to be like Moses, and he's going to lead us out of captivity. And then the next thing they want to do is make him the king, right? Because they assume, probably what you would assume, that the only way to have peace and freedom is to fight for it. They assume that if this is going to be the king and this is the one that's going to bring us out of slavery, this is the one who's going to deliver us, this is the one in whom there's going to be a new Passover, then, then he's going to have to fight the Romans, right? That's the only thing that just makes sense, right? And so in order for them not to make him the king, Jesus goes back up onto the mountain by himself, okay? And then the next part, I wish we had time to read all of this, but the next part of the story is Jesus leads the twelve across the sea miraculously does that sound like the Moses story right lead them across the sea miraculously so he he delivers them from the angry waters and and leads them across the sea miraculously then verse 25 so the the people that had been on the other side of the sea the ones that had wanted to make him king and they're like hey this is the prophet that was to come Jesus just kind of disappears the 12 disciples went across the the sea in a boat and Jesus didn't But then Jesus never came back, and they were just kind of waiting, and where is he? Where did he go? And so when they figure out he's not coming back, they went across to the other side of the sea to find him. And it says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now that's an important part of what Jesus is going to say. He says, work. Are they working? Yeah, they were working, right? I mean, they traveled all the way to the other side of the sea. They were going to track this guy down. And Jesus says, it's not, it's not because you really understand who I am. It's not because you really understand my mission. It's not because you really understand how I'm going to deliver you or what I'm offering you that you worked so hard to find me. It's it's because you had lots of bread. That's really why you wanted to track me down. And he says, listen, I want you to work for food that doesn't perish. Now, verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What kind of work do you want us to do? What, what sort of effort should we put forth? What sort of works ought we to be doing? And Jesus answered them, listen, this is the work of God. This is what God wants you to do. Here's the work, okay? That you, what? Believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in me. That's the work. 
the work that God wants you to accomplish, the work that you're supposed to do in order to have the the bread that doesn't perish is believe in me. Again, go back to to John chapter 1, verse 17, that the law came through Moses and grace and truth have come through Jesus. We sometimes pit those against each other like the law was bad, like the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, that's better, come through Jesus. It's in addition to. The law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus. That Moses gave Israel an opportunity to know God and experience God and have a relationship with God through the law, right? Here's God, and you can have a relationship with God, Israel, through the law of Moses. But Jesus comes along and offers them the opportunity to know and experience God through himself. Moses says, here, come and experience God through this law, through the tabernacle, through the keeping of these commandments, through the covenants. Come and experience God through this law. And Jesus comes and says, come and experience God through me. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So here's the work that God wants you to do. Believe in me. Now again, go back to what he says about what their claims were regarding Moses. You say you've put your hope in Moses. You say you believe in him and trust in him. You say you put all your eggs in his basket. If that's true, then you'll believe in me that kind of way. You'll put your hope in me. Here's the work that God wants you to do. Let everything ride on me. You put all of your trust in me. You really believe in me. You put all of your hope in me. Let all of your eggs be in this basket. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Right? Okay. Okay. So you want us to believe in you. What sign uh, do you do that we believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers... (laughs) What are they after here? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right? It's like, okay, you want us to believe in you? We'll take some more bread then, you know? I mean, that worked pretty well last time. Just give us some more bread. After all, that's what Moses did, right? Moses gave us bread in the wilderness to eat. So if you really want us to believe in you, give us some bread, right? Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, right? So it wasn't Moses who in the first place gave them bread, it was God. God, remember the manna in the wilderness and they'd wake up in the morning, there was bread all over the ground and they'd go and pick it up and they could eat and have life. And, and Jesus says, listen, it wasn't, it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread, it was my father. And now he's giving you bread from heaven in sending his son. And his son, the one he has sent from heaven to earth, this is the bread so that you may have life. And of course, their response, it's just like Nicodemus's response in chapter 3. It's just like the woman at the well's response in chapter 4. Sir, give us this bread always, right? Okay, you got some bread? Okay, like we said earlier, we're still hungry, so, you know, give us some more bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I mean, that's an incredibly audacious claim, isn't it? 
I am the manna. I am the bread that God has sent down from heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Right? I'm, I'm what God is sending you. I'm the sign. I'm the gift. I'm the bread so that you can have life. I'm like the manna that God gave your forefathers in the wilderness. Now, pay attention to what Jesus says. In order to have the life that comes from the bread, that comes down from heaven, what do you need to do? Come to him and believe in him. If you come to me and you believe in me, you won't be hungry or thirsty anymore. How do you, how do you receive this bread that God has given you from heaven? What's the work of God that God wants you to do? Believe in him. Set your hope on him. Trust in him. Let him be the one, the basket in whom all your eggs are placed. And you say, that's the one. I believe in him. I trust him. Where he goes, I'll follow. What he says for me to do, I'll do it. I'll obey him. I'll follow him. I'll be devoted to him. I'll be loyal to him. I'll give my allegiance to him. He is the bread from heaven. And Jesus says, if you come to me like that and you believe in me like that, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. Now, skip down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, right? I mean, it was not, it's nothing against the manna, right? It's nothing against that bread, but said that bread didn't give people eternal life. I'm the bread that God is sending from heaven that gives eternal life so that if you come to me and believe in me, you'll have life and you'll not experience eternal death. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, all through this text, all through the text, how do you eat the bread? You believe in Jesus. You come to Jesus. You put your trust and your hope, you give your loyalty to and your allegiance to him. And he says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now at this point, you kind of, you know, tilt your head a little bit and say, okay, now that just got a little weird, Jesus. I'm not sure what you mean by that, right? Eat your, eat your flesh? What is that supposed to mean? Now, if you were in that moment, it would be really, really hard to understand what he's talking about. But now that we can see the whole book and the whole story, it, it's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, how is it that, that someone gives you bread to eat? What do you, what do you have to do in order to take the manna or the dough and make it into bread? You got to knead it, right? You got to punch it and pummel it and twist it and turn it and stretch it. And Jesus says, that's going to be done to me. I'm giving my own body, my flesh and blood, so that you can live. But you have to receive it. How do you receive it? Same thing he said all through this text, right? Believe in him. Come to him. Trust in him. Put your hope in him. Now, of course, our mind automatically goes to the Lord's Supper, right? Our mind goes to the Lord's Supper, and we say, well, that's the time we eat the, eat the flesh and drink the blood. Well, I mean, that's sort of related, but that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. 
It's more than that. It's not less than that. That's certainly what we're remembering when we do this memorial meal. But it's every day, isn't it? The death of Jesus has become our sustenance. It's become the bread that we eat. It's become our life. It's what we eat of and drink of every moment of every day. On Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, if you're coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus and believing in Jesus, then you're eating his bread and you're drinking his blood. You are receiving him and it's his sacrifice that's giving you life. He's sustaining you every single day. His sacrifice and giving himself has become your way of life. It nourishes you. Now, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Okay, let's ask our three questions. Number one, here's our questions to consider. Number one, what did Jesus say that offended so many disciples? Well, he said everything that we just talked about, right? His flesh and blood were the bread sent from heaven to give life to everyone who believes in him. Not Moses, but my father is the one who gives the bread, and the bread that he gives is me. And my flesh, my blood are going to be your food. That is what is going to give you life and sustain you. Okay, but number two, why did that offend so many people, right? Why did that offend so many people? Well, a couple possibilities. One is that maybe... Maybe they misunderstood, right? And they thought Jesus was talking about cannibalism, right? At least for a second, that's what they thought, right? They thought, what are you talking about? Eat your flesh. That's weird. I don't know what you're saying that for, right? So, so maybe there was a misunderstanding. And maybe they all went away misunderstanding what Jesus was talking about. Or, or maybe they understood. Maybe they were disappointed that Jesus wasn't talking about delivering them and giving them life by killing all the Romans. Maybe they were disappointed that this wasn't the sort of Messiah that was going to win and give victory and give a new Passover through military strength and might. And maybe that was disappointing to them because they had wanted to make him their king. And now all of a sudden he's talking about, hey, the bread that I give you, the bread God gives you to eat and give you life is going to be my flesh. And they're like, I don't know exactly what this guy's talking about, but it doesn't sound like anything I thought a Messiah was going to say. Why would he sacrifice and give his flesh and give his blood to save us? That doesn't sound like the sort of thing a Messiah would say. So maybe they, they left because they were disappointed. Or, or maybe, maybe another possibility might be that they left and they were offended by the sheer audacity of his claim. Who is this person to say, put All of your trust in me. Believe in me. If you want to have life in this life and in the life to come, in the age to come, then you put your trust in me. Put all of your hopes in me. If you really put your hopes in Moses, now put your hopes in me. If you really put all your dreams and all of your trust and all of your faith in Moses, now put it in me. Invest it in me. Maybe they understood what he was saying. They were just offended by the sheer audacity of it. Because all throughout, if you just read the whole conversation, that's exactly the sort of thing he's claiming, isn't it? Put all your trust in me. And that's an incredibly difficult thing, isn't it? And so the third question, 
Jesus turns to the 12. After all these people leave, and he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? And we've got to wrestle with that, don't we? I, I think another way to put that would be, are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out? I've made some pretty audacious claims. Put all of your trust and all of your hope and all of your faith in me. Let my flesh and blood be what sustains you and gives you life. Center your life completely and totally and utterly on me. Are you in or are you out? Now, they had been with Jesus enough time where they could decide that, couldn't they? They had enough information to go on to decide, am I in or am I out? Sometimes, and we've talked about this before, haven't we? Sometimes we, we try to have it both ways, where we can sort of stand on the dock and stand on the boat at the same time. And we're like, well, you know, I'm still just trying to make up my mind. Sometimes we, we don't even stop to ask ourselves this question. Am I in or am I out? Now, listen to their response, okay? Listen to their response. You probably know it already. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where where else should we go? Where else can we go? Am I in or am I out? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, it's implied you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, they would sort of waver in their commitment, wouldn't they? Peter especially would waver in that commitment. But Jesus asked him, are you in or are you out? Do you want to go away as well? You have the opportunity. Nobody's forcing you to stay. Nobody's forcing you to be my follower. But I'm offering you eternal life if you put all your hope and all your trust in me. If you believe in me and you come to me, I will feed you with my own self. I will give you life eternally. Are you in or are you out? And Peter says, where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We've, we've seen you enough, and we've, we've seen the signs, and we know, and we're committed to the fact that you are the Holy One of God. But I love, all throughout this gospel account of John, it gives us these moments of truth, right? This was a moment of truth. And it'd be hard, wouldn't it? All, your, all of your friends are like, you guys are crazy for following this dude. I don't know what he's talking about. He's not the sort of Messiah we were expecting. This isn't what we wanted to get into. And so we're out. And these 12, they stay. Where else can we go? And so they had a moment of truth. And you and I have a moment of truth. Sometimes we don't, we don't take Jesus seriously enough. Maybe because we grew up coming to church or grew up hearing about Jesus that we don't hear the audacity of his claims. Does this offend you? That Jesus would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Moses gave you an opportunity to know and experience and be connected to and have a relationship with God through the law. I've come that you might have that relationship through me. Are you in or are you out? Do you want to go away as well? And as we sort of wrestle with that and think about that and go home and hopefully chew on that at lunch, We think about this. Do you want to go away as well? Are you in or are you out? How can we tell if we're in or out? How can we tell if we're in or out? We've said this sort of thing before, but I think it bears repeating over and over again. We, If we really are followers of Jesus, 
who really believe that there's nowhere else we can go. There's no one else who has the words of life. There's no one else who is the Holy One of God. We are committed to Him. We're in. We don't want to go away. We're committed. We're followers. We're disciples. We're not going anywhere. We're following Him, right? And if that's true, then there should be some decisions that we're making in our life and some things that are going on in our life that only make sense in light of the truth of the gospel, right? That there are things that we're doing that only make sense if Jesus really is the prophet who was to come, if Jesus really is the great high priest, if Jesus really is the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But if we're real honest with ourselves, sometimes we want to, we only want to do things that make practical sense, that make pragmatic sense. Well, you know, I don't want to do that because that doesn't make sense of this. That doesn't make, we think through everything logically and there's nothing wrong with logic or being practical. But if there aren't things going on in our life and decisions that we're making that only make sense in light of the truth of the gospel, then we have to ask ourselves, do you want to go away as well? Are you in or are you out? Do you really believe this? And then we study like we really believe it. And we pray like we really believe it. And we give like we really believe it. And we serve like we really believe it. And we share it with others like we really believe it. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have seen and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. We're not going anywhere. We are committed to you. What decisions are you making? What decisions am I making? What decisions are we making as a group that only make sense if Jesus really is the King of Kings? That's why I'm, I'm excited about this Brighter Together thing. I'm excited about that because that only makes sense in light of the truth of the gospel. We believe that Jesus is the one who has the words of eternal life. We believe that Jesus is the only one who is worthy to be trusted and put our hopes in and believe in and follow, put all of our eggs in that basket. We believe that. We believe that Jesus alone changes lives. So we got to do things that only make sense in light of the truth of the gospel. Let's look at our life today. Seriously, look at our life today. Let Jesus ask us this question. Do you want to go away as well? Are you in or are you out? Are we the kind of people that say, no, we're not going anywhere. We are following Jesus. We know, we've come to believe that he alone has the words of eternal life. And sometimes we waver in that commitment, don't we? Like Peter, who spoke those words, we waver in that commitment. And we need each other to encourage each other and build each other up. So maybe you need prayers this morning. Or maybe you're ready. You haven't put Jesus on in baptism and you're ready to make that commit. That's what baptism is. It's us saying to the Lord, we've come to believe and to know that you alone have the words of eternal life. That you are the Holy One of God and we will follow you. Your flesh and your blood will be our nourishment and our life. If you're ready to make that decision or you just need prayers, let the shepherds pray with you after service or right now. Come forward now as we stand and sing this song.